Why do we say love is a garden? Well, after all, the whole love story of the human race began in the garden. Their love was at its peak and then it went into decline. And then finally love was reaffirmed again in the garden. Hello, my name is Stephen Dunn. I'm the author and creator of Hellenistic Christendom, a philosophy of religion blog, podcast, YouTube channel, etc., dedicated to the truth and veracity of the Christian worldview. Today, however, you are listening to an episode of Unadulterated Theology, where I'm going to address my personal position and opinion on what an appropriate Christian response to, chrono- uh, to pornography might be look like. Now, I use appropriate in a rather strict sense, specifically that I don't mean appropriate in terms of proper or faithful to a certain interpretation of the text, but rather in terms of appropriated, which means to make one's own. I have surveyed the various responses, both conservative and liberal, religious and non-religious, etc., to pornography, sex work, state-sanctioned prostitution, and etc., to the best of my ability, and have come to a present position, although certainly not a definitive one. Now, my purpose in sharing this position with the present listener is not to blast the same alarm that Christians, feminists, and various iconoclastic ideologues are incessantly blasting on the question of sex. Now, a common procedure henceforth to move forward in these sort of deliberations may be to examine the precise attitudes that different political as well as philosophical schools share on the subject of pornography, agency, consent, and sexual attraction. For example, it is a common caricature of the leftist position on pornography, even on sex work and other gender-related issues, to suggest that consent, agency, and bodily autonomy are the driving forces that determine the sexual ethic of the liberal progressive. Likewise, it is a common caricature of the right's position on pornography to be one of regulation or deregulation, censorship, and rhetoric surrounding notions of obscenity. So it is easy to paint a picture of the common good conservative who here might say something of the promulgated sexual ethic of the pornographer as not a morally indifferent procedure, but one which very much is involved in affecting the social fabric of how the sexes, men and women, mothers and fathers, son and daughters, and etc., relate to one another. But of course, I'm not going to follow these common caricatures because I'm not interested in organizing positions on pornography, whether for or against, into a kind of conceptual box. This may very well be the work of the philosopher or even the scholar, yet I am not really either of those, and so will not academicize this kind of conversation for the present listener. Rather, I understand the question of sex, and to that of pornography and sex work generally, to be one of nuance. Stated another way, the present culture, as too often our religious apologists like to speak of, the modern mind, is one which is caught up in the movement of premises to conclusions. That is, in some individual's movement towards developing a life view of maturing and progressing in life, they are, of course, most obviously, eventually making their way towards life's end, which, of course, is death. However, despite the multitude of individuals who are countlessly and effortlessly coming to their end, how sad it is to consider that yet they are never coming to their own conclusion. There are then two kinds of listeners who are actively and currently present for this brief lecture, which might have two very different perspectives on these conclusions. Now, in the language of the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, there are premise authors and there are essential authors. 
Premise authors are those individuals who, in viewing the extent of their lives as an argument, they are only a multiplication of premises that are forever lacking a conclusion. As Kierkegaard writes in his book on Adler, quote, This in turn has the effect that the conclusion becomes more and more difficult, because instead of the decisiveness of the conclusion, there is a stoppage that, spiritually understood, is what constipation is in the animal organism. Meanwhile, an increase of the premises is just as dangerous as it is to overload oneself with food when one suffers from constipation, even if for a moment it brings relief. Then the movement of the age gradually changes into an unhealthful fermentation. Just as when the sick person does not digest and assimilate the food, but merely brings it into fermentation. The individuals whose lives likewise have only premises now also utilize this sickness of the age to become authors, and their productions will be just what the times demand. So then, the essential author recommends dieting, whereas the premise author recommends new beginnings by way of a sort of impatience that lacks perseverance, and hence offers projects, lists, suggestions, hints, secrets, plans, and all the like in order to establish a sense of confidence of one's progressing or making some kind of progression towards a conclusive life view. Now, my procedure of being a Christian here and addressing the issue of pornography and sex work is by means of indirectly communicating the truth to individuals in order, in order that they might stand with relation not only to others, that is, their neighbor, but ultimately before God as a sinner. Now, what is so peculiar about my procedure then is that I have no interest in beginning here as a Christian. In fact, I have far more interest in beginning instead quite more simply as a human being. That is, I want to address, or I should say, I want to stress the importance of incorporating a love for humanity, specifically stated, a love for the art of being human, especially given a sympathy for human lives and human interests. Now, this art of being human entails an aspect of the contemplative life, the life of the mind, that is, which involves an active contemplation of the moral values, of moral virtues, excuse me, such as prudence, temperance, and courage. Now, the point is to clarify, or this point is worth clarifying because the degree of religious psychology that will go into this deliberation will specifically be of the kind that has confidence with psychological insight at the level of personal experience, dialogue, conversation, and even with some minglings of a knowledge or concern, if you prefer, for that which is essentially human. Christianity is not a religion which is so isolated from cultural norms, linguistic differences, and societal constructs that it can never appropriate a life view within every individual despite these apparent prohibitions. In other words, the listener can view the issue this way. I will not be saying, I am a Christian, and here are the reasons why your position suggests that you are not, or at least not upholding Christian ideals, doctrine, or etc. faithfully. I rather would like to be saying something like, I am hardly an author. In fact, my authorship can even be viewed somewhat accidentally. What matters more is that what I have to say might in some way help you stand in an essential relation with the truth, with a capital T, rather than remain in the finite, accidental attitude of whatever my own position is on the issue of pornography or some other issue, which indeed is nothing much of a position at all. 
So then the question of pornography and sex work is important for me because the question of sex is important more generally. And of course, the question of sex is important because it involves one of the frontier question of one's being in life. Who am I and how do I relate to others? Now, what has been interesting to me about my thinking uh, of sex over the last several years is to the view or is to re, is to examine the the ways in which human beings individuals that is are inherently relational now pushing the debate aside as to whether or not there are intrinsic essential or substantive properties of human persons it is still nonetheless almost unanimously agreed that human persons by way of their own act of existence are relational now shakespeare well reminds us that the dialectic of existence was either to be or not to be however in the case of human persons they are not merely to be as such but rather to be with others that is to say more specifically that since human individuals cannot exhaustively understand their own being or existence by virtue of themselves alone there's a sense in which the individual cannot come into a full understanding of themselves without a relation to some other. On a, mon, uh, on a more complex issue, this pours into the conversation regarding the phenomenology of erotic desire. Now, for example, according to Thomas Nagel's treatment on this, erotic attraction arises not simply from seeing another as a desirable object, but rather from a complex series of mutual perceptions in which the participants both see the other and see the other seeing them. And so it is this knowing of the self as seen that creates the arousal peculiar to our nature as social beings. In other words, there's a sense in which the sexes, according to the typically heterosexual binary masculine and feminine, mirror one another, that Man and woman have a sexual complementary nature that has teleological purposes inherent within their respective biological structures to work towards the end of propagating human life. However, my interest is precisely to clarify this sort of question with the best possible precision, detail, and care. In the words of the Catholic philosopher turned nun, Edith Stein, when reflecting on why she was shifting importance and focus to matters of women's issues and rights, said, simply, because I have to. I am only hopefully trying to follow in those same footsteps. Better yet, as Newton said, in order to see farther, we have to stand on the shoulders of giants. Every existing individual, Christian or not, has to come to know what it means to appropriate a life view regarding sexuality, the erotic, and love, and a host of other questions, as it is unique to their own subjectivity. More precisely, what this means is that every human being must have a, a little better understanding, as the Greeks did, regarding the ancient call to know thyself. Trying to come to a better knowledge of oneself sounds, unfortunately for some, like an easy task. They reflect on what is external to the world around them. They know themselves by way of the decisions they make, the job they have, the woman or man they marry, the alcohol they drink, the video games they play, the books they read, the neighbor they despise, the past failure they, they committed, ad infinitum. And so appropriating the truth inwardly or making the true truth for oneself is not something, as I agree with Soren Kierkegaard, that can be communicated directly to another. That is... I cannot make you stand in an essential that is subjective relation with the truth. I can only be an occasion for your coming to a knowledge of it. 
Hence, this entire procedure that I'm doing, though somewhat philosophical and even poetic sounding as it is, somewhat stands as the reason that Christians ought not to address crowds. In other words, the Christian preoccupation with the public sphere or regarding the debate surrounding pornography, sex work, prostitution, and etc., should have to do with addressing the existing individual as such. Stated another way, I say existing individual to ring a sort of bell within the philosopher's or the debater's mind that individuals are not abstractions or dolls ready for our conceptual disposal, but are indeed concrete and actual human persons who not only have an inherent right to be, but to be loved as well. Hence, again, the contemplation of such activity cannot be left merely to the life of the mind, but must hand itself over to that of active contemplation. That is, of the mind being aroused by the passions of the soul to align the individual will to the object of its desire. So a viable Christian position on sexuality, then, would seem to me to address and affirm the fundamental dictum that God made in his conclusion of the creation week that it was all good. So the argument goes, if God made the body, then the body is a good thing. And yet, perhaps we have maybe derailed too far into our deliberation so as to speaking of God so soon. But a caveat worth mentioning for this point. So I'd like to step back a little bit. My position on pornography is such that I cannot take up some conceptual, albeit typically normative moral argument, against consensual sexual ethics because this procedure at its very heart holds up the opposition that is my opponent in the realm of mere language or ideality. In other words, the relationship with my my listener, my present listener, can be one of having two attitudes. And I often designate the difference between these two attitudes with the Latin phrases adversio and amicus. Now, my listener who is an adversio, that is one who you turn away from, is one who will not point their finger in the same direction as I would in asking similar questions. Oftentimes, I'm not able to see my adversio naked, as it were. They are, every now and again, robed in the various garments of my own faults, that of prejudice, bias, short sight, ignorance, anger, and misunderstanding. However, oftentimes, by way of humility, self-understanding, and really above all, concrete interaction, that is, actually engaging and conversing with your dialectical other. The individual can be stripped of these garments and enjoy uh, the same shameless self-understanding that Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall. And how easy it is, I think, to put our opponents in conversation, not so much with ourselves as such, but with the material knowledge gained in some area of detached intellectual study. Who is talking to the atheist is not Stephen Dunn, but C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, chapters 1 through 3. Who is talking to the depressed prostitute is not Stephen Dunn, but Soren Kierkegaard's Concept of Anxiety, chapter 5. Who is talking to the doubting Catholic is not Stephen Dunn, but Thomas Dubay's Faith and Certitude, chapters 1 through 3. And yet, who will speak to Stephen Dunn? Who, more importantly, will speak to every man and every woman? And so then, here we are squared back again to the issue of appropriating the truth inwardly as it accords with one's own life view. Sex is concerned with what is essentially deep about the human person. Unlike the other bodily appetites, such as taking a drink to satisfy thirst or eating a meal to restore strength, 
Sexual desire is the only bodily appetite which carries with it the greatest moral significance or magnitude even. The Christian position on the question of sex in culture ought to start by way of having the individual scratch this itch for themselves. The Russian philosopher Lev Shestov once said that the best way to convince a reader was to, quote, go on in the same suave tone from uttering a series of banalities to expressing a new and dangerous thought without any break. If you succeed in this, the business is done. The reader will not forget. The new words will plague and torment him until he has accepted them. The reason I think this whole speak of subjectivity is relevant towards porn criticism is because I am more concerned with concrete individuals coming to a self-understanding of their own existence as individuals as they relate to others. However, I don't want to lose the listener um, with this overemphasis of this need for a subjective appropriation of the truth. When I speak of the truth, you know, the truth in quotations, I guess, I tend to use this synonymously with the good, which may refer to salvation, rebirth, God, ultimate reality, and a host of other subjects, which generally denote an eternally, albeit spiritually significant, understanding of those terms. Now, the way in which all this comes into reality is by the Christians going out into the world and actually interacting with, and more significantly, intentionally loving other human beings. This in and of itself won't be an element which could turn one's conceptual template of the world totally on its head, but rather that a wise and graceful communion with other human beings can deepen one's conceptual template of the world. So in my case, when I wanted to deepen my understanding of the porn industry, I immediately went out and sought opportunities sought opportunities to individuals, various individuals who are willing to subject themselves to my curious questions. Now, one significant friendship that turned out of this endeavor was a series of conversations that I had with Vic Japola, who is the author of the book Wait for the Corn, Lessons Learned from Being Married to a Porn Star, which he wrote, I believe, last year in 2019. So he's the husband to the ex-porn actress Kira Lee, known by her pseudonym more famously as Danny Daniels. Now, my conversations with Vic have extended into various recorded episodes, now available on my YouTube channel, Hellenistic Christendom, where we discuss the realities of the porn industry, religious attitudes towards sex, and we even had a debate or discussion on the veracity of Christianity more generally, which was exciting. But even further, I've had dinner with Vic and have even served him and his family at the restaurant where I presently work as an outcome of these exchanges. So what was so radical for me about these interactions was that I was able unlike many others so like me, to assimilate a real relationship with existing individuals who are typically only known beyond a screen. And I would describe my first meeting with Vic and his family as incarnational, as God directed the entire process for me to learn how the word, or more precisely, the image, might become flesh and dwell among us. Now, Christian and non-Christian listeners alike might find it all the while very strange that I'm speaking of a woman involved in the porn industry with such spiritual or theological language. I'm reminded here by Aquinas' assertion that really all contemplation of beauty is oriented towards God, who is the face of beauty. A careful line of caution, however, awaits us here. Those who would be so inclined to follow beauty even in the area of pornography must not become like those anathema priests and elders who were condemned in the early church for housing harlots, unmarried single women, and the like for vainglorious purposes of attempts at converting them. Our illegitimate concupiscent desires cannot intermingle indissolubly into a coherent practical theology 
Now notice I said illegitimate concupiscent desires and not merely desires as such because I want to clarify that Christian theology does indeed invite concupiscent desire. Of course, when operated, when operated in the appropriate sense. Now, the point here is that a discernment between the art of pornography and the beautiful is a meaningful ontological as well as moral distinction. Now, the Christian entering this arena must have a deepened understanding of self-knowledge and thereby self-control, perhaps to an extent have suffered and lived out their faith a little bit in the world, and also include here a deeply embedded passionate love for others. So when the Christian so enters into the arena this way, they are more concerned with a truth that builds up rather than a truth that merely puffs up. So perhaps a brief word for those of the more philosophical bent on the manner to which a Christian is considered free or coming into a knowledge of themselves. Now, understood one way, there is a sense in which the Catholic position of human freedom was a linear understanding, under which the human self had an underlying ontological freedom to be enabled by grace to arrive at deeper understandings of the self in relation to God as sinner, and so on. Now, the Reformed, or shall we say Lutheran view of human freedom, was that there was no freedom outside of belief. That is, unbelief entailed no freedom, or perhaps unfreedom. Hence, rather that the human individual stands in a linear relation with a deeper and deeper growth in God consciousness over time, the Reformed view suggests that the individual only becomes free through a dialectical shift that takes place between God and human beings, or God and nature generally, which is instantiated by the monergistic activity of God. Now, it is supposed generally that Christianity is responsible for the introduction of internalization in the West. More precisely, the Catholic and the Reformed view tackle both different but unique sides of the same coin regarding subjectivity. The Catholic view of subjectivity is more oriented towards interiority, which regards the spiritual, often mystical approaches to the human heart as direct pathways to the being of God. As the poetry of St. John of the Cross and the writings of St. Teresa of Avila showcase best, and I have the lawn people here, so do forgive me for that noise. <laughs> now, the, the Reformed view of subjectivity is more oriented towards relationability, which explores more meaningfully the dialectical relationship between I and thou, which is to borrow a phrase from Martin Buber's book of the same title. Now, when I say dialectical, I don't hope to be losing the listener in obscure and complex vocabulary, but rather I'm pointing out that there's a dialogue taking place between two factors. In other words, there's a dialectical relationship taking place. In this context, the relationship is God and man. God and man. Their dialectical relation to one another has to do with the radical ontological shift God initiated in the existing believer at their moment of rebirth. Now, the Reformed view eventually came to explore this dialectical relation by the ways in which the individual's relation to God was meaningful. Hence, those who remember their German critical philosophers will remember Immanuel Kant, who argued that concepts like God, freedom, immortality of the soul, the afterlife, and etc., cannot be known by theoretical reason because they don't exist in the phenomena, but rather in the noumena. Stated another way, concepts like God, freedom, and immortality don't have phenomenal existence, or existence which is apparent to the senses. 
They do, however, said Kant, exist in the area of practical reason, because there's, there's a sense in which these concepts still have to be made use of in our ethical lives. Hence, God could be related to not just far off from the realm of metaphysical idealism and indifference, but thanks to Kant's philosophical system, and I mean that sarcastically, God could be related to as an eminent principle in the world by which the Christian can safely and intellectually, satisfiedly walk along and rest his head well regarding the great existential problems of life. Now, this isn't to reduce the Catholic view and the Reformed view into this constant or in this contrasted kind of way, since there are various exceptions and nuances within the conversations of 16th century Protestant Catholic theology onward into contemporary discussions. However, the reason for my highlighting this is to have the listener think precisely a little more deeply about their relation to God, which, if they, as believer, are presently enjoying, can perhaps use the boost not of knowledge but of influence to contemplate and love God deeper, and this would be all the better. But I am, however, concerned more so with the unbeliever, who merely understands or excuse me, who merely stands in possibility towards an existential relation with God, and hence my language cannot be applicably meaningful all the same in both cases of the believer and the unbeliever. However, the listener, despite their present spiritual disposition, knows the tugs of spirit which, with which these models of relating to our knowing God help them better understand themselves and possibly address the various anxieties that they carry in their everyday lives to maintain distraction, boredom, evasion, mockery, and depression to reduce themselves down to the level of finitude and necessity. In other words, the despairing individual is the one to whom I am concerned to address. Now, one basic form of despair is that of finitude and necessity, whereby the individual understanding themselves in bodily categories, that is, not as spirit, or a synthesis, a synthesis of body and soul, which is posited as spirit, they close themselves off to possibility. The despairing person who closes themselves off to possibility becomes despair. That is, in their depression, they don't see how they could be otherwise, as if the body were the only significant constituent of their being, the self becomes fixed to its self-understanding as an illness, or sees itself almost as having a sickness about it. Hence, the various anxieties of human beings understood in their solely pathological context tends to treat anxiety as almost algebraic. In other words, when the psychiatrist is trying to abstract the sorts of anxiety that arises in his patient, be it sweating, pulsating, heavy breathing, hypothermia, or what have you, when the body is only, or, or I should say, when the body is only understood as body, does the psychiatrist's various abstractions of these complaints expressed in the patient become a matter of reciting an alphabet almost? They almost sort of say, ah, yes, A, B, C, therefore D, E, F. And understood another way, when the self is viewed as a composition of body and soul, Contemporary language likes to say psychosomatic being. Anxiety becomes something in which the categories of a human being, which freedom, possibility, and temporality all refer to these categories that I'm talking about, become more metaphysically ambiguous than 
algebraic expressions. So the matter of anxiety and sex is something I've treated in various places on this podcast and my other podcast, Hellenistic Christendom, but only briefly will I skim through considerations of this topic. So in thinking about sex, the average Christian evangelical might all too commonly complain that American culture is sex-saturated. Everything is about sex, I have incessantly been told. However, therein exactly lies what the Kierkegaardian psychologist, the evangelical critic, and the all-too-curious philosopher have in common, that they think it all has to do with sex. So the profound issue of sex is that it's pervasive, inherently compelling nature makes the issue of repression and censorship bring about so many contradictions which showcase in either animalistic bestial morality, naive prudishness, or irreverent mockery in the ones who are affected by the repression or the contradictions. Now, precisely not talking about sex should be of interest to the pastor as it should be to the philosopher and the psychologist. Now, Soren Kierkegaard was right to point out the sort of farsity of Christians finishing the Sunday sermons on marriage and continence with amen, but then see a movie at the theater the next evening which mocks the very attitudes and subjects addressed in their sermons. What is to be made of all this, he asks in his journals. And yet, of course, don't confuse my point here as being one of clarifying a moral prohibition, but rather to highlight that a serious attitude and ethic towards sexuality and the erotic is often not treated with care in Christendom and the world generally. And so to adopt this attitude seriously and earnestly as a Christian, moreover, though these issues do not merely concern the religious believer, is to approach a treatment of the erotic with passionate inwardness that avoids all naive understanding and yet remains within the confines of moral seriousness. The pulpit and the theater are in contrasting conflict with one another, says Kierkegaard again. The theater, <coughs> excuse me, oh my God, I am 25 years old, my voice still cracks. The theater in treating sexuality without seriousness and essentially mocking it, looking at the pulpit, will never engage what it has to say. And so then I'd like to come to a conclusion of this talk by providing some more concrete clarifications on why a Christian position of criticizing contemporary pornography needs to reform. So then there is a temptation to approach critical examinations of pornography with an appeal to pathos. That is more so to the intention of provoking pity, sadness, or really more emotive context regarding our musings on pornographic culture, influence, and so forth. Now, we can no longer leave the critical analysis of pornography to mere intuitive bad feelings that might exist against pornography. I think the robust intellectual, even Christian responses can be articulate and even provide an alternative vision of the nature of sexuality, of the human person, and of love especially. Now, this is because pornographic culture and media is adapting into more and more mainstream formats that are almost unprecedented for the common Christian to rightfully address and guard their heart. Of course, I don't want to merely resort to this kind of spiritual defeatism, but that is to say, this position is precisely defeatist if the Christian wishes to remain well and stupid among the spheres of influence that are taking place and consuming the world around him. I really do think that pornography is no longer being viewed as the causally connected industry 
that pertains to or encourages rape culture, subjugates women, degrades sexual intimacy, or supplies a form of degenerate art. The industry is actually finding itself with a garnering presence of women taking a lead role in the industry, such as the Spanish filmmaker and adult actress Paulita Papel uh, participating in adult entertainment where she is the actress, director, and producer. Another example comes from one of the current leading tycoons in adult entertainment, who is actress, producer, and film director Angela White. And in a recent interview she had with The Daily Beast, um, conducted in February earlier of this year, we were reminded of the current climate with which adult entertainment may flourish. She says, quote, I think anyone who has followed the adult industry for the last half decade will know that stereotypes don't hold true. With the internet and the democratized means of production, anybody can start recording themselves and broadcasting themselves, says White. You've been, or excuse me, you've seen a proliferation of body types and really a celebration of different fantasies and different sexual preferences. It's not how it used to, or excuse me, it's not how it used to be when a handful of major studios controlled the narrative. Now, given this new and sudden democratization of bodies, we are provided with the foreshadowed consequences that this form of pornography is being very much viewed as a kind of art form. And hence, we are told the societal and moral uh, taboos associated with porn may be diluted or obliterated with the proper education in mind or conditioning, I guess you could call it. But my point is to suggest that we need to match this view of education for the general societal audience with an equally provocative, not shocking, robust, reinforced, pedagogical expression of the theological reality of the human person. And I want more and more groundwork with philosophical and academic rigor that puts to silence, but doesn't shame, sexually exploitive views of persons and intimacy. And hence, my argument that our criticism against pornography needs to adapt is that we need a reinforced or maybe reminded vision of an authentic Christian or theological beauty to combat the sudden tide of conversation taking place among secularists regarding or who are suggesting that pornography no longer possesses this sort of horrific, degrading, or degenerate expression of human bodies. And this is what I think are elemental considerations that are now needing to be had on the nature of the image, of what it means for something to be art, what love really means, and of what it means to be a person, an individual, and so forth.